Well, last week we looked a bit closer at this passage in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 4, where Paul is at the tail end of his greeting to the church in Thessalonica, and he says that we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. So we speak, not to please man, but to please God who knows our hearts. And so there's so much in there. Uh, We looked at the rest of what Paul says in that part, and he says that he came not just to give the gospel, but our very lives as well. We said that following Christ is not this segmented reality where we get to pick and choose our moments of obedience and adherence to God's word. It's a wholehearted and holistic commitment. It's a commitment to serve and love Christ at any and all costs. And so that verse is so packed full of of truth and theology that what have we been entrusted with? So the whole summer, we're just trying to break down what that means. We're trying to just really dig into what does that mean to be entrusted with something, to be entrusted with the gospel I tend to think, I don't know, maybe you're not like me, but the more I dig into this, more my mind is blown week after week after week with how little I've talked and thought about this. I'll be 40 in November. I grew up in the church. I was around the church my whole life. This book has been prominently placed around me my entire life, and I start to wonder, why am I waiting till I'm almost 40 years old to start wrestling with some of these hard truths? And they're not even hard truths. They're just so profound. I I tend to think that the way I said that before, and when I say before, I mean like years ago, maybe a decade ago or so, I would have said hard truth would have been things that are really hard to hear and obey. But man, the older I get and the more I dig into the, the, the depths and the knowledge of Jesus and the gospel, I start to see it. I don't know if there's such a thing as a hard truth in the way that I defined it. The hard truth is is getting to the point where we completely trust that Jesus is who he says he is, that he did what he did, and that he did it for us. That, That a life committed to Jesus should have certain patterns to it should be lived a certain way, not cookie cutter that everybody's is exactly the same, but our priorities and our values shift dramatically when we really understand who Christ is and what he did. I think that we can warp this so easily. And I'm a sinner. I was born a sinner. And we talked last week about our default setting. I think we all have a default setting. And, uh, and we run back to the same troughs. We run back to what Jeremiah calls a broken cistern, looking for something to drink, something. We're looking for something to drink out of something that we know doesn't hold good water. We talked about 1 Corinthians last week in 1 Corinthians 6, where he's addressing some specific things in the culture of Corinth. And one of those things is just rampant sexual sin amongst the people in Corinth, and how they even equated their sexual sin to their godliness. 
and they made some of their sexual sin practices with prostitutes and things part of their temple worship, and they, 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 they tried to deify their behavior. They tried to make sure that they were justifying their behavior in the lens of who God is. There were people in there that were taking the word of God and taking the teachings of Jesus and they were distorting them and trying to convince people that a little bit of sin in this department's okay. And so when Paul writes back to the church in Corinth, he's addressing that sexual sin. And we read through that passage in, in 1 Corinthians 6. And at the first part of that, he's talking about how you should settle your, dispute, your disputes with fellow believers by actually having conversations with one another and, and, and looking at the beauty of who God is and letting that funnel down to who, who you are and allowing God to help you bring peace to these situations. Don't just automatically involve the courts. And then he goes into sexual sin. So Paul is very uh, deliberately addressing certain specific sin patterns in the life of the church in Corinth. And he's gotten some correspondence. We get, we get this from how he's writing this and how he's saying these things. We get that information because he's telling us, uh, you communicated with me and you said this. Or he, he leads us to believe that there's been communication back to him from the leaders of the church in Corinth that there's certain things going on and Paul needs to address them because it's almost like they will listen to Paul, they might not listen to all their leaders, and the leaders themselves are probably questioning all of this and saying, what do we do? How do we lead through this? I'm grateful that there are people way further down the path in ministry, people who understand the word better than me that are maybe not, aren't even pastors that I can go to and say, listen, I've confronted this thing. I've been confronted with this thing, and I need wisdom to walk through it. Can you help me? And that's what the leaders in the church in Corinth are saying. And so Paul gets back to them, and he's saying in verse 6, and this is why it's important for me to say, say this, he, he's addressing sexual immorality, and he talks about how sexual immorality, no other sin so clearly affects the body. And then he says something interesting, and this is what caught my attention. He says, or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. And the, the way I picture it is that is Paul's writing this letter and he's addressing these specific issues that he's been asked to address. And he stops himself and says, this isn't necessarily a sexual morality issue. It's deeper than that. Maybe you don't know. If Paul just addressed sexual morality, he would be addressing the symptom of a deeper problem. An analogy, if you've sat and had a conversation with me about this kind of stuff, I've used this analogy before, but it's kind of like being diagnosed with lung cancer and deciding that instead of going getting the treatment necessary, you're just going to chug Dimetap all the time. Someday you'll die of lung cancer or ravage and wreak havoc throughout your body, but hey, you won't have a nasty cough anymore because you've treated the symptoms. But man, to treat the disease, it's uncomfortable, isn't it? In that analogy, you've got to go through painful treatments and you've got to potentially lose your hair and potentially deal with nausea and, and just inconvenience of life to eradicate the disease is uncomfortable. 
And what Paul is trying to say in this, well, not trying to say, he is very blatantly saying it. If you are a follower of Jesus, you need to understand where the residing place of the Holy Spirit is. It is no longer in the tabernacle. It is no longer in the Holy of Holies behind the veil. When Jesus died on the cross and rose himself from the grave three days later, conquering sin and death for all time, he allowed us to become the dwelling place of his Holy Spirit. And what Paul's telling the church in Corinth and to us, because we have his word in front of us, God's word in front of us, is do you not know where the residing place of the Holy Spirit is? Do you not know? This holy of holies, the, the tabernacle, the resting place of the Holy Spirit, it is in you whom you have received from God, not from your work, not from your holiness, not from your morality, not from your lineage. You've received that from God. You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. That's how he closes out his thoughts when he's talking about these things. And he says, honor God with your body. And what we talked about last week that ties into this week is what does it look like to steward our lives? I firmly believe that you can steward your time, your talents, your treasures, and do a terrible job of stewarding your life. Because I believe that time, talents, and treasures can have symptomatic approach to it. I can say that I'll, I will give some of my time to the church or volunteer organizations. I will give my money to the church or volunteer organizations or nonprofits. I will give uh, my talents. I will, I will provide my talents to these organizations, to the local church or to these nonprofits. And we can feel like we're doing all the right things, but we're not stewarding our lives well. We're not living like the Holy Spirit of God is dwelling inside us. So once we are in Christ... What keeps us from living like Christ? It's a simple answer with huge implications. The simple answer is sin. You learn that when you're like six years old. If someone asks a question in your Sunday school class, you can answer with things like sin if it sounds like it's going to be a negative answer, or you just answer with the Bible or God or Jesus if it sounds like it's going to be a positive answer. So if we were to just say that, so once we are in Christ, what keeps us from living like Christ and just say sin and close the book and walk away, how does that help us? How does it help me? So I'm just going to be honest with you, and I think I said some of this last week, but going through some of the stuff has been a very personal journey for me. It's not like I sit in, in, over in that messy, cluttered office of mine if you've seen it, it is messy and cluttered. If you haven't seen it, uh, I mean, if you have seen it, that's what it is. If you haven't seen it, it's supremely clean. Uh, but it's not like I sit in there and think, hmm, what can I tell people this week? I don't sit in there and say, oh, I had a conversation with so-and-so this week, and they're a real mess, so I should probably address their sin through a message. It's not like I sit down and say, okay, God, give me something to say. Okay, Isaiah 40 it is. I don't do a Google search on innovative sermon series. What, what, I've been, what I've been trying to communicate up here, what I've been 
what I've been trying to allow God to communicate through me over the past couple weeks and months and years is just me wrestling with God and him just tearing me down, tearing down my heart, and through that trying to communicate what he's teaching me from this amazing book. Kids are playing with the light switches. <clears throat> so that's where this is coming from. So I, I, I believe that if we just answer this, the, the question as sin, it, it, that's too easy. That, that's, that's, that's a cop-out. That's a cop-out. I want to say, like, when someone comes and talks to me, and there are people in this room who we've had some counseling sessions together, and i got to be honest with you, I love those moments. I love just sitting one-on-one with someone as we just wrestle with what God's doing. What is God doing in our hearts? And several times I want to give pushback and say, I hear what you're saying, but you're here. And that's just a waste of both of our time. So let's not talk about surface-level stuff because it's just a waste of time. What do you mean? What do you mean by that? What does it mean? If I say, so once I'm in Christ, what keeps me from living like Christ? If I just say sin, I say that's surface level. What does that mean? And the more I prayed through that, the more I dug into God's word, I believe that scripture supports the idea that what keeps us from living and loving like Jesus can be funneled down to two main areas. Now, those two main areas can have branches that come off of them forever and and, and ever. But I believe they can be funneled down to two main areas. One is pride. Pride. Pride is thinking you know better than God. Pride is, is, is living like you are the stuff. Like you've got the world on a string. Frank Sinatra said, sitting on a rainbow. Got the ring around my finger, right? What a world, what a life. Pride is that, that thinking that I know better than God. It's really too high a view of yourself and too low a view of God. That's pride. Pride is elevating yourself and, and de-elevating, de-escalating God. So I think the number one area, not, not in that order of like ranking them, but there's two areas that I think you can funnel down to, and the first one is pride. We're puffed up. We're elevated. We, we think we're something. Too high a view of ourselves, too low a view of God. We see the, the beauty of Christ's sacrifice for salvation, but, but not good enough to give our whole lives to. It, it's, just, it's, it's more of a get-out-of-hell-free card for us. Okay, God, there are segmented parts of my life that I realize I've really messed up. And I need you to save me from that. I need you to redeem this mess that I've got myself in. So, Jesus, I cry out to you, and I need your grace, and I need your mercy, and I need your salvation. Please come redeem my life. And in that moment, you mean it. You really do. And there's a whole other section of ourselves that in that moment we're not willing to give up. That's pride. Pride keeps us from living that Christ-centered, gospel-filled life. And the second one is shame or regret. 
Now, just talking about pride, which we will do in, in the next couple weeks, I believe it, it keeps us from understanding what we've been entrusted with. Or maybe we have an unhealthy view of what we've been entrusted with, and it makes us feel more important than we actually should. The second one is shame or regret. Now, this one is thinking too low of yourself and thinking too low of God. But the problem is always a low view of God. That's the problem. And when we carry shame and regret, it's like we're saying that we don't feel worthy of God's love holistically. And feelings are fickle things, right? Our feelings can shift and change. Not long after Megan and I got married, we went to Walmart, which is the best place to buy furniture, obviously. And uh, I was making a cool crisp $16,000 a year at the time. And, uh, and so we, we moved into this house, and, and we had this giant TV, and not like a big screen. I'm not talking like a big screen TV. I'm saying that it was a 27-inch TV, but it was about that deep and weighed 6,000 pounds. <laughs> so at the time, we didn't have cable, but we had a... Uh, I think it was a VCR slash DVD combo, and uh, if you don't know what a VCR is, uh, Google it. Um, and uh, and I think I had a, a PlayStation or Nintendo sixty four or something like that. Okay, um, and it wasn't retro enough to be cool yet; it was just old. Um, and so we went to Walmart, and back in the in the service department, they had all of these like display furniture items that they had out, and they weren't even selling them anymore, so they were getting rid of the displays, and we got this TV stand, this cabinet, uh, and we decided that we, we wanted that more than the one that we had, and it was really cheap, so we get it and bring it home. So that night, I decide that, uh, you know, you don't look at the directions, right, guys? And so the thing's already put together, but I don't want the stuff sitting on top, the shelf on top of the TV. I want the stuff on the bottom and the TV on the shelf. So that's what I do. And so we get it all set up, and I don't even think we watched anything that night. And we go to bed, and you know, we're right at the point where the lights are out, and you're about to be completely like stone dead to the world, right? And at that point, boom! Just like, it sounds like someone kicks in our front door. So we're laying in bed, and Meg goes, what was that? And I was like, I don't know. I don't know what that was. But being the you know, strong, powerful man that I was, I just laid there. And I said to Meg, why is your heart beating so fast? Just calm down. And she's like, Adam, that's your heart. (laughs) And in that moment, I felt for sure, I felt for sure that someone just broke into our house. My feelings were completely convinced that someone just kicked in my front door. So I don't know what I grabbed, maybe a shoe or a flip-flop or something, and I, like, sneak around the corner like, like I'm a cop, you know, and I'm ready to just, like, slay the person that just came into my house with my shoe and uh, come around the corner only to see my TV dangling down onto the ground with the screen side down. The shelf brackets were not made to hold, like, that mammoth TV, and they broke, and the whole thing fell out and punched through the door and landed on the floor, and uh, and... In that moment, I realized my feelings shifted from fear to shame in a matter of seconds. One, I was ashamed of how cowardly I was laying in bed trying to protect my wife. And my wife's like, uh, that's you. Calm down. I'm sure. You know, in her mind, I don't think she's thinking someone kicked in our door. She's just 
asking your husband to get his butt out of bed and see what did make the noise. But my feelings going into the living room where someone just broke into my house. What am I going to do? How am I going to protect my bride? What am I going to do whenever this guy comes around the corner? Should I punch him with my left or punch him with my right? I'll kick him like Steven Seagal. I know what I'll do. Like, you're running all these scenarios through your head, right? Because your feelings have you convinced that your actions need to follow suit with what you're feeling. And as soon as I came around the corner and saw the TV laying on the living room floor, my feelings shifted. And now, automatically, I'm not thinking about punching anybody, maybe myself, but I have to now walk back into the room, the whole walk of shame, and go back in and tell Meg, no, 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 it was just the TV stand. You know, earlier, whenever I was putting the TV there, and you said something to me along the lines of, are you sure the TV brackets will hold it, or do you think you should just put it on the bottom? I think it should probably be on the bottom. Do you think you should put it there? I have to go in and say, you were right, it was the TV, right? Feelings are fickle. And they can change in an instant. And the thing about feelings is, if we're feeling them deep enough, we run down all these rabbit trails of our scenarios, right? How many of you have been in a situation where somebody you know or you assume somebody's upset with you? And you get a text message or an email or a phone call and they say, hey, why don't we get a cup of coffee this week? Maybe Tuesday. So let's say it's Sunday when you get that text message. Between Sunday and Tuesday, your brain has created four billion scenarios of how that conversation is going to go. You've thought about every possible thing that you could have done to upset this person. You could have thought of every possible scenario as to why they want to get coffee. You have run all these scenarios through your head. Am I right? Am I the only one that does that? Raise your hand. No, we all do that, right? And then we sit down and are like, hey, I just wanted to get a cup of coffee. I haven't seen you in a while. And you're like, dang it. Completely wasted 48 hours of mental capacity. <laughs> Feelings are fickle. But why, so, so why, why do we know that? Why do we know that our feelings cannot completely be trusted all the time? And then say that I don't feel worthy of God's holistic love for me. Why do I know in a situation like I'm sitting across the table from someone getting a cup of coffee that I shouldn't have trusted my negative feelings and now all of a sudden I should trust my feelings as it equates to God's love for me? We carry shame and we carry guilt and we say things like, but you don't know what I've done. No, 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 you don't know. You don't know how ugly my sin is. You don't have any idea. I was thinking of that this week when I came across what Paul says in his letter to Timothy. You don't have to turn there, but it's 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, when he says this to Timothy. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Paul. Paul's writing to Timothy, and I think in the NIV it says that he calls himself the chief of all sinners. Paul, that's how he viewed himself, the chief of all sinners. You see, the problem what we do is we carry the shame and guilt along with us, and we, we convince ourselves that God loves us for salvation, but he doesn't love me holistically. That, yeah, I know God died for my 
for my sins and to redeem me. I know that. But what you don't understand is the ugliness that I endured. And what Paul says is, I am the chief of all sinners. When I look at the grace of God that's available to me, I don't think anyone's sin is worse than mine. That's what Paul says. And yet, Christ Jesus died to redeem me from it. So I give it to him. Paul's a great example to look at when it comes to this because he could have easily been slowed down by shame and guilt because Paul was one who persecuted the church. Paul was one who, who hunted down Christians and sent them to jail and killed them. He could, have, he could have, in the moment that he met Jesus, say, I know who you are, but you don't know me. You don't know what I've done. I'm not worthy of this. And then walk away. But what happens in that moment is Jesus looks at us and says, if you weren't worthy, I wouldn't have done it. No, you didn't deserve it. No, you didn't earn it. But you are worthy. You are worthy of my love because I say you are. You have worth and you have value because I gave it to you. I assigned it to you. I have approved you. I have entrusted you with the gospel. We are in Christ. That's us. That's our story. The chief of all sinners. So I think that's the starting point for going into what Paul says to the church in Rome. If you want to turn with me to Romans chapter 8, we're going to look into that. Romans chapter 8. That's on page 652 if you're using the Bible in front of you. Make it a little easier to find. Romans chapter 8. Now you have to understand, uh, I would love to stand here and just read through what Paul said because Paul says it so much better than me. But in chapter 7, he's talking to the church about how you've been released from the law. Now, I've said this before. I'll, I'll say it again. I'm sure I'll say it again and again and again. But I believe that Paul wrote the most comprehensive letter that he wrote to the church in Rome because Rome was where culture was being funneled out of into the rest of the world. And if you can get the gospel to infect the city like Rome, then the gospel becomes the thing that gets sent out through all over the world. So Paul's bucket list, if we want to call it that, was to get the church established in Rome, the center of culture, the center of philosophy, the center of education in that day. If the gospel can infect Rome, then it has the potential to make its way into the whole world. So the, the letter to the church in Rome is a very comprehensive letter, more so than any of his others. So he breaks things down more. And part of the reason he does that too, just for reference, is that, is that the people that live in Rome that he wants to, this letter to be read to and to be equipped that with are people that came out of very pagan mindsets and pagan laws or came out of a very hyper-religious world. So chapter 7 is he's all talking about the law. You've been released from the burden of the law. You, the law and sin, he breaks that down. He talks about life in the spirit then where we pick up, and that's uh, Romans 8, chapter 1, I mean verse 1 through 11. Follow along with me. There's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, 
For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk, not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through the Spirit who dwells in you. That is powerful. That is powerful. Martin Lloyd-Jones was uh, a Welsh preacher from the 20th century, and his quote on this says this, Most of our troubles are due to our failure to realize the truth of this verse. What happens if we forget that there is now no condemnation? What happens if we forget that there is now no condemnation? Well, on one hand, you can feel more guilt. You can feel unworthy. You can feel pain. You can feel that way more than you should. And out of that comes this, this drive or need to prove ourselves. And we become hypersensitive to criticism. We, we get super defensive. We have a lack of confidence in any of our relationships. We have a lack of confidence and, and joy when we pray and when we worship. We, we can give over to addictive behaviors. And that, that all can be this reaction to a deep sense of guilt and a deep sense of unworthiness. And on the other hand, you can have a whole lot less motivation to live a holy life. We can have less and less resources to help us with self-control. If we're followers of Christ and we don't really understand that whole no condemnation, it, it only, we only obey then out of fear or out of duty. We obey because we're afraid or we obey because we feel like we have to. If we don't really grapple with what Martin Lloyd-Jones calls the full wonder of no condemnation, well, then we won't understand any of the rest of chapter 8, 1 through 11, or, or 1 through 13, if you want to keep reading. And we'll completely miss the sense of it. We might understand what it's saying, but we won't understand the heart of it. He goes on to say this, and I love this. This helped me understand it a lot more. 
The difference between an unbeliever, Martin Lloyd-Jones says this, the difference between an unbeliever sinning and a Christian sinning is the difference between a man transgressing the laws of the state and a husband who has done something he should not do in his relationship with his wife. He is not breaking the law. He is wounding the heart of his wife. That is the difference. It is no longer a legal matter. It is a matter of personal relationship and love. The man does not cease to be the husband legally in that instance. Law does not come into the matter at all. In a sense, it is now something much worse than a legal condemnation. I would rather offend against the law of the land objectively outside me than hurt someone whom I love. In that case, you have sinned, of course, but you have sinned against love. So you may and you should feel ashamed, but you should not feel condemnation because to do so is to put yourself back under the law. That, to me, made a whole lot more sense of this. That, that if you break the law, you are condemned to the law. The law is there to condemn you when it is broken. But in the confines of a marriage, it's a covenantal relationship. And if a man strays outside of that, he does not break the law. He breaks the covenantal bond that he has with his spouse. He wounds the heart. He's no longer, he's not under the condemnation of the law. The law is not going to come after him for his affair. But he has broken the heart of one he's committed his life and promised his life to. See, when we're under the law, the law shows us our brokenness. See, I, I always viewed the Ten Commandments poorly because the law, the Ten Commandments and the law of God riddled throughout the Old Testament isn't there to just be this heavy burden and that alone. It's, it's a gracious gift from God to reveal to us we are broken, to point us to something better, to, to make our hearts ache to be released from the bondage of the law because we can't keep it. We wake up to the reality that we cannot keep the law and there's nothing else there but the law. How hopeless of a life is that? If all life is is just following the rules, then yeah, of course we feel ashamed. Of course we feel a burden. Of course we feel heavy. Of course we struggle with, with just deep despair. Because the thing we banked on saving us let us down. And, and it wasn't the law's fault. It was my fault. The law didn't let me down because it was there. The law let me down because I couldn't obey it. So the law is just, it's con it, it, it means if I'm under the law, that means I'm condemned. That's what that means. But if I'm under grace, if I am in Christ, that means I am redeemed. That Christ wipes the slate clean. That your shame and your guilt, you are not guilty anymore because you get my righteousness. You couldn't earn it. Remember those days when you tried to follow and obey the law and you just couldn't. That was how you got righteous and you couldn't do it. You were not right before God because you broke the law of God. I want to reread Romans 8. 
1 through 11 to you from the screen. I want you to follow along with me. This is Eugene Peterson's interpretation of it that comes from the message. It's not a translation, it's a paraphrase. With the arrival of Jesus, the Messiah, that fateful dilemma is resolved. Those who enter into Christ being here for us no longer have to live under a continuous, low-lying black cloud. A new power is in operation. The spirit of life in Christ, like a strong wind, has magnificently cleared the air, freeing you from a faded lifetime of brutal tyranny at the hands of sin and death. God went for the jugular when he sent his own son. He didn't deal with the problem as something remote and unimportant. In his son, Jesus, he personally took on the human condition, entered the disordered mess of struggling humanity in order to set it right once and for all. The law code, weakened as it always was by fractured human nature, could never have done that. The law always ended up being used as a band-aid on sin instead of a deep healing of it. And now, what the law code asked for but couldn't deliver is accomplished as we, instead of redoubling our own efforts, simply embrace what the Spirit is doing in us. Those who think they can do it on their own end up obsessed with measuring their own moral muscle, but never get around to exercising it in real life. Those who trust God's action in them find that God's spirit is in them, living and breathing God. Obsession with self in these matters is a dead end. Attention to God leads us out into the open, into a spacious, free life. Focusing on the self is the opposite of focusing on God. Anyone completely absorbed in self ignores God, ends up thinking more about self than God. That person ignores who God is and what he is doing, and God isn't pleased in being ignored. But if God himself has taken up residence in your life, you can hardly be thinking more of yourself than of him. Anyone, of course, has not welcomed this invisible but clearly present God, the Spirit of Christ won't know what we're talking about. But for you who welcome him in whom he dwells, even though you still experience all the limitations of sin, you yourself experience life on God's terms. It stands to reason, doesn't it? That if the alive and present God who raised Jesus from the dead moves into your life, He'll do the same thing in you that he did in Jesus, bringing you alive to himself. When God lives and breathes in you, and he does, as surely as he did in Jesus, you are delivered from that dead life. With his spirit living in you, your body will be as alive as Christ's. I could never have said it better. Can you go back a couple slides? Something I want to emphasize. There, go back to the next one. Sorry, there it is. Anyone, of course, who has not welcomed this invisible but clearly present God, the Spirit of Christ, won't know what we're talking about. It's okay to not be completely understood in this world as it pertains to your life in Christ. 
It's okay if you can't package it up in a way that makes people who don't know Christ understand it. That shouldn't change our obedience. It's okay to be a broken mess when you come to Christ because nobody in the history of redemption since the day Jesus came back from the grave has ever come to him clean and whole. Every one of us has come to God as a train wreck in our own way. Every one of us has stepped in front of God's mercy at the foot of the cross and received that gift of salvation. Every one of us has been, has been guilty of breaking the law of God. Every one of us has carried the burden of a graceless life. Every one of us has carried that burden. And sure, some of our sins are heavier than others. Some of us, when we look that we live in a fallen world, some of our experiences are dark and hard to reconcile. But at the foot of the cross, ugliness is ugliness. Sin is sin. And God died to send his son Jesus to die to save us from all of it. Nothing is out of his reach. You're not guilty anymore. We can't steward our lives well for the glory of God and furthering the gospel and carry shame and guilt along with us. The incongruent, the math doesn't add up. We either run hard towards Christ and let him have it all or we don't receive a full grace from God. We carry a burden we were never meant to carry. We walk through life receiving a, a half measure of God's grace, if that's even possible. And God is standing there willing to take it, wanting to take it, longing to take it. Doesn't matter what you've done, he says. It doesn't matter where you're coming from. It doesn't matter where you've been. Hear me tell you, I forgive. You're not guilty anymore. You're not filthy anymore. I love you. Mercy is yours. You're not broken anymore. You're not captive anymore. I love you. Mercy is yours. Can you believe that this is true? Grace abundant, I am giving you. Cleansing deeper than you know. All was paid for long ago. There is now, therefore, no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. If shame and guilt are the things that you feel are holding you back, church, I promise you it's not worth carrying out of this building again. It's not worth carrying. Because the one who, the only one who has the shoulders broad enough to carry your shame and guilt already did. It's already been dealt with. It's already been slain on the cross. It's already been dealt with. The work has been done by Christ on your behalf. We cannot live a life where we, where we are approved by God and entrusted with the gospel and still carry our shame and, and our, our doubts knowing that if we gave them to Christ, he would take them and free us of that bondage. You're not guilty anymore. But once we look into this deeply, we understand that we're not ignorant anymore. You are spotless. You are holy. You are faultless. You are whole. You are righteous. You are blameless. You are pardoned. You are mine. Those are the things, the words of God that want to come down on your life.
you're here and you are in Christ, that is the message of God. If you are not in Christ yet, that is the message that God is longing to speak to you today. The words that I said there are from a song that we're going to close with. It's not one that I think we should all sing along with. It's one that I think you should hear and pray. And if it's possible, band, you can come on up. If it's possible, to sort of put yourself in a spot where you can hear the voice of God saying these things to you, these profound truths, that you're not guilty anymore. That from this day forward, you don't have to walk as if you are. There is now therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. God, thank you for this profound truth. We pray that your word prevails. We pray that your truth prevails. That your truth wins. That it sinks through to the marrow of us and we leave changed. That we understand that there is now therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. We don't have to live in condemnation or guilt. We get to live in the victory of your work on the cross.